0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We're singing, worshiping God's great blessing in our life, and He's saved us, He's loved us. But God doesn't bless us in order for us to selfishly hoard that to ourselves. God intends and in his design for the universe is that those who are his chosen, those who belong to him, would be a source of blessing to the world around them. So Abraham was to do that, Israel was to do that later, and the same is true for us. Uh, so the question is, how did Abram do that? Uh, how was Abram to be a blessing? What did that really mean? That he would bless the nations, and of course, uh, you know, every time I read that, I, I immediately jump to, you know, Matthew chapter one, and I see Jesus. And certainly, uh, it is a prophetic statement that through Abraham's descendants, the Messiah would one day come. But is that all it meant? Does it just simply mean that well, someday, long, long, two thousand years from now, you know, the world's going to get a savior because of you? Or was there really more going on here? Well. Well, it's true that the Messiah did come through Abraham. I believe that God's design was that his life then and there, uh, during that time, during the days while he was on earth, would be a blessing. And so, let's see in Genesis 14 how that happens. We're also going to jump ahead a bit and see how that operated in chapter 18. Uh, <clears throat> so we got the story here, the backdrop. In case you missed last Sunday. Uh, Abram has just marched with 318 guys from his own household, servants who were trained fighting men, and they marched all the way up to the very northern, actually beyond the northern edges of what would someday be Israel, caught up with this King K, Keter something rather, King, King Keter Cheddar Cheese or something, uh, catch him, and uh, in the middle of the night attacks, and actually uh, is successful in defeating this coalition of four four kings, uh, four powerful men who had just been on a raiding trip all throughout uh, the southern regions of Canaan, and had proved themselves to be a a mighty fighting force. But Abraham, with his little household troop, his little private army, defeats them and is able to retrieve all the possessions that had been stolen, that had been looted from Sodom and and, uh, the cities of of the Dead Sea region. And all the inhabitants, all the women and children who had been captured, and so he's making his long trip back, and it's about 70 miles, 100 kilometers or more, from where he captured and regained uh, these these prisoners, and marches back to the to the south to what would someday be Judah. And so as he's on his way, he gets very close to what is the city of Jerusalem, and he's greeted by a welcoming party. And in the welcoming party, there's a band, there's flags, or sticker tape parade, yay, Abram, he's our hero, right? And out there are some dignitaries in, the, in the, you know, the VIP booth, namely two of them. There is Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, Jerusalem, and there is the king of Sodom. Okay. Now, this story kind of uh, illustrates the blessing and curse principle, and playing the part of the blessing is Melchizedek, Praying, playing the part of the loser guy who doesn't have a clue who curses, is Sodom, the king of Sodom. Right? So, first off, the blessing part. That's okay? so we're talking about, how it was Abram a blessing to the nations. And Abram blesses, uh, and is blessed by Melchizedek. And it says that as he comes, they go out to meet him, and Melchizedek uh, goes out and he throws a feast. So as he brings them bread and wine, probably, if you read just bread and wine, it sounds like they took communion or something, his little tray with a couple of crackers, a cup of wine. Probably it was much bigger than that. Probably it's a, an expression for he, he fed them. I mean, here comes these people, these captives, this army of 300 people. Uh, they're hungry. They've been traveling for many days with sheep and flocks and camels and all that they retrieved. And so the king, in his generosity, goes out and he brings... Bread and wine, okay, an idiom for food and drink, okay, for for this returning uh, war band. And, uh, and Melchizedek, Melchizedek is this kind of strange, mysterious guy. Who is this guy? Who is he? He's referred to in the New Testament several places. He's always cast in a very positive light. And in fact, he is a type of Christ. And uh, the writer of Hebrews argues for the supremacy of Christ based on the priesthood of Melchizedek. So who is this guy? Well, um, he's a king, king of Jerusalem. Uh, He is also a priest. The question is, the question everybody wants to know, is what religion was he a priest of? Was he Catholic? Was he Mormon? Was he Buddhist? Was he Hindu? What was he, right? Uh, He goes out and he he, uh, greets Abram. He blesses Abram. In fact, he blesses Abram in the name of the God Most High, right? Uh, But as of of yet, there is no... You know, here's the reality. I don't know if you thought of this or knew this, but did you know that Abraham was not a religious man? He had been in the religion, the pagan idol religions of Canaan and Mesopotamia, but God had called him out of that, and now Abram was really a guy without a religion, all right? He has no church building. He has no priests. He's just a guy following God, right? No religion of his own. Um, So what religion was Melchizedek? Well, all the religions of Canaan were classic pagan idol idol religions. Uh, It's most certain that Melchizedek worshipped the pantheon of gods of the Canaanites. Who were these gods? Well, basically these gods were the great-great-grandfathers of Hinduism. And uh, Hinduism came as the the, the priests of Mesopotamia and Canaan drifted south into Indochina and took with them this myriad of gods. So basically, he was worshipping idols, worshipping a religion very similar to Hinduism. Many, many gods with many names, right? And he was a priest of that religion. Now... You know, this causes all kinds of problems for us Bible scholars because, uh, you know, this guy's a type of Christ and he's an idol worshiper. Something's wrong with this picture here. What do we do with Melchizedek? Who is this guy? Well, um, you know, the reality was that he was a very religious guy. Uh, He was a king, he was a priest, Uh, he took his religion very seriously, he was clearly a religious person, right? Uh, but given the religion of his day, given the, uh, the idolatry that was all around him, the reality is that he he had really bad theology. Okay, so if getting into heaven and being saved is a matter of good theology, Melchizedek was not saved. Right? He did not know the true and living God. Uh, he he believed in in many many gods. Right? Everybody as they did. Um, but here's the thing, and here's the thing to understand in the Old Testament. Okay? What did it mean for the nations to be blessed through Abraham? Okay, that's the question. And that's the issue that this passage is answering. What does it mean for anyone in the world to come to and know the true and living God? Well, what it means is this: that God is now setting up a covenant relationship with Abraham, and then from that time on all the world's relationship with God would, would be determined by one simple question. Okay, and the question isn't, how many gods are, are there in the universe? That's not the question. The, the question is not, uh, you know, who created the world? Okay, that's not the question. The question is simply this. What do you do with Abraham? That's the question. Okay, you see this? He says, all the nations will be blessed if they bless Abraham. If they curse Abraham, they will be cursed. So basically the test now of how you stand with God and how you stand in your relationship with God is how you treat God's representative on earth, who at this point is Abraham. So the question really isn't about uh, Melchizedek's bad bad theology or messed up theology or confused ideas about the universe or his worldview. The question is, what are you going to do with Abraham? as the one who is God's representative on earth. And in essence, sense, Abraham is in many ways a type of Christ. How do people get saved today? Well, in the end, it's really not our theology that saves us. Now, hear me, please. I do believe in right theology. Okay, I think it's a good thing. I strongly encourage people to study the Bible, to develop your own theology. However, this is very important. You don't get saved by theology. All right? If if that was a requirement for salvation, if you had to know everything perfectly true and right about God before you got saved, none of us would ever get saved. Because the truth is, when we came to Jesus, how many of us had this whole God thing figured out well? I know I didn't. I had lots of very confused, and still have, I'm discovering daily, confused ideas about God. Right? I still am learning, and God is revealing himself in new ways, and my theology is growing and changing, and... Thankfully, I, I, believe I, am, I believe I'm moving toward truth. Okay? But we don't start out there. How does one get saved? Well, Jesus said simply, it's, it's this easy. You get saved by what you do with me. Either you receive me and welcome me, or you reject me. All right? That's the beginning point of salvation for every human being. What do you do with Jesus? And not only that, but the New Testament makes it clear that we function as Christ's ambassadors on earth. So another way to look at it is that people's relationship with God is not only based on what they do with Jesus, but what they do with you. As people come in contact with you as his representative on earth, uh, those who bless you move themselves closer to God through that blessing. By receiving and accepting you, they're receiving the one in whose name you come, just as they receive Jesus uh, and receive the one in whose name he came. But Jesus said it this way in Mark chapter 9. He said, for, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. All right. So we are God's ambassadors. Uh, our life represents Jesus in the world. And the same principle holds true. Those who bless us are blessed. Those who reject us and what our life stands for fall under God's curse. So that's, that's what Abraham's life was about. And um, so how does, how does Melchizedek do on this ground? Okay? We don't examine his theology, but we examine what he did on the basis of how he treated and viewed Abraham. Well, how does he view Abraham? Well, he thinks Abraham's a pretty cool guy. He comes out and the first thing he does is he serves him dinner. Okay, he honors him, and he blesses him by providing this meal. Okay? Secondly, he actually speaks a blessing over Abram, which was the role of a priest. The priest, One of the things they did was to speak blessing over people. And notice his blessing. He said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Um, he speaks this blessing, and uh, he acknowledges first of all that Abram uh, is especially in a special relationship with God Most High. Okay, so he's saying, you know, Abram is a very blessed guy, and I see that he's very blessed because it's clear that the God Most High's hand is upon him. Now, when he used that term, who was God Most High? Uh, It's the Hebrew or also Canaanite phrase, El Elyon. El Elyon. The word El, pronounced oftentimes we say El, um, is the generic word in Canaanite and Semitic language of all those language groups for God. Elyon simply means the supreme or exalted, the top one. So he's identifying Abraham as one specially related to the big kahuna in Hawaiian the big cheese, the main guy, the top dude, the biggest of the big gods. Okay, So he's got this part right. He realizes that there's one true living God who's creator of heaven and earth, and however many other gods there are, there's one chief God. And somehow this one chief God uh, is the one who is with Abraham. And only that, he acknowledges that this is the one by whose hand this work was done. He said, blessed be the God of Abraham, blessed be God most high, who has done this mighty thing. Right? So so what's happening here is Melchizedek is coming to understand and get a picture of the true and living God through the life of Abraham. Right? Uh, I don't know if he had ever seen God work before. I don't know if he had ever seen miracles before. I don't know if he ever had any real clue about the what the Almighty God could do. But on this day, he knew. right? On this day, he had seen that clearly there was an Almighty, powerful God, and this Almighty, powerful God had his hand on the life of Abraham. And he blessed Abraham, and he blessed this God who could rescue and deliver like that. right? Um, as a result of this, Abraham in turn blesses Melchizedek. And he gives him a tithe of all the spoils he just captured. Uh, Amazing picture here. Okay, You get this. So here's Abraham. And it's like, you know, I want to worship God. I want to give this offering. Uh, I don't know where to go to church. I don't know who the religious dude is I'm supposed to do this for. But here's a guy right in front of me who calls himself a priest and who blesses the God Most High. I'll give it to him. And so he gives this gift to Melchizedek. And here we see this blessing, this formula unfold, right? Uh, Melchizedek blesses Abraham and blesses and, and, and is turned around and blessed through Abraham as he gives him this gift. Um, but I really believe that Melchizedek is blessed just beyond goats, okay? He receives some goats and some whatever, spoils of war. But I believe the blessing goes much for, more beyond that. Uh Abraham, in a very real way, has made God tangible to this priest. Okay? The word tangible, I looked up in the dictionary, the word tangible means capable of being understood and evaluated, and therefore regarded as real. Right? You see, Melchizedek ultimately became blessed, not so much because he received some goats and chickens or whatever, but because he now saw almighty, all-powerful God working and moving in the lives of human beings. And so he became blessed. And uh, he does become a true follower and worshiper of God Almighty. Uh, He is then able to stand as a representative for Christ in the New Testament as this mysterious, unique priest. Whatever his religion was before, through contact with Abraham, he now uh, has a different kind of faith. He now has a different understanding of the world because Abram has made him tangible to this priest. And I believe that's what God meant when he said, the nations will be blessed through you. In other words, I will be in a kind of relationship with you where you will walk by faith and your life will demonstrate the power of God and my deliverance and my rescue in ways that are tangible and real. And when people welcome you, they welcome me. And they will learn about me as they see how I work through the lives of my children and my people. And really that's what our role is in the world. In many ways, as God's ambassadors, that's exactly what we do. We serve a role in this world as salt and light. And what that means is our life uh, as people changed by God makes God tangible to the lost world. Uh, we do that uh, through our conversion. Uh, especially if some of you who are converted later in life, and you had like a really dark life that was notorious, right? And then maybe you came to Jesus, and now you have the light in the life, life in the light that is also notorious, right? Your testimony and the change in your life bears witness to the real and living God, right? Right? Uh, but not only through our salvation, but through our daily life, as we see God answer prayer, as we love those who are hurting and lost, as we serve the people around us, as we live in our families, in godly relationships, right? All of those things point to a true and living God, don't they? Uh, And the bottom line is, our greatest witness and our first line of witness is always our life, right? We ought to be proclaiming the gospel. We ought to be telling people the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done for them. But the first witness we have is our life, right? It is who we are being transformed by God, in whom God is working daily. Right? And the reality is, you might live in Thailand and not speak, you know, four words of Thai. Kop Kung Kap and Sawade Kap. It's like your whole vocabulary you still are a witness to Jesus, to people all around you, right? Uh, you know, believe it or not, they know who you are, okay? If you're at the mall, if you're walking around Thailand, nobody thinks you're a tourist, right? You just don't look the part. Well, maybe Brennan, he, maybe they think he's a tourist, you know? But the rest of us just look different, okay? Paul, Paul, you could pass as a tourist. The rest of us just look not normal, Right? We're too stiff. Right? Those guys are laid back. The rest of us are mostly stiff. They know who we are. right? They know we're Christians. Right? And they are watching our lifestyle. All right? Even if you look like a tourist and you have a lifestyle that is reflecting Jesus, it is a witness to them. Right? And the basis of their response to you either moves them closer to God or farther away. Either they are drawn to the light that is in you or they are repelled by it. Uh, Either they hate you because of how you live, or they admire what you do and are drawn to it. And that's a biblical principle that started all the way back with God's relationship with Abraham. That God's chosen people would be the source of blessing or curse to the rest of the world. And so that's one way that Abraham was a blessing. By just being in God's will. And by being part of God's redemptive plan in the universe, he was blessing the nations. He was bringing God in a very real and tangible way to the world. Uh, Secondly, uh, Abraham does give this tithe to um, to Melchizedek. Um, We bless the world, we bless the nations, and we bless God through our offerings. Uh, It's interesting, it says he gave 10%. Where did you get this number, 10%? Well, actually, it was quite common in that day. It was kind of like the standard giving. You know? uh, we think it was like a Mo- like Moses invented this or the church invented this or something. Actually, it pretty much comes from pagan idolatry. <laughs> okay, it was kind of a standard thing. The gods get 10%, right? Uh, and so Abraham, for whatever reason, follows that pattern, and uh, he gives it to Melchizedek as a priest. And even though... We don't know what religion Melchizedek was part of. Abraham clearly gave it to worship and honor God. The God who had blessed him. And and it was done because he had seen how God had had worked and had protected, had, had made this possible. And so it seemed the right and reasonable thing to do to honor God by giving 10%. And, well, I'll give it to Melchizedek. He looks... As good as any, right? And he worships God uh, by this gift. Uh, we do and we ought to bless God by our giving. Uh, now, let me say this. How much should we give? Well, I don't know. In the New Testament, it's not real clear. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of people who fight and will argue vehemently for the whole 10% thing. Others, much more free and loose and liberals, say, you know, it's not about a number It's about, you know, just honoring God. I don't know how much, but let me say this. As you stand before God, all of ancient Canaan, Mesopotamia, the Middle East is going to say, you know, the minimum is like 10%. Anything less is just being cheap, okay? You you stand with those people as a witness and backdrop, you know. Give what what you want. I don't care. But, you know, they're going to call you cheap if it's less than 10%, all right? It's up to you, right? I don't know how much to give. And it really is not about the amount. It really is about the heart, right? Here's a formula. Here's just my suggestion for a formula. Give a percentage in proportion to how much you value God's salvation in your life, Uh, How much is what God has done in your life worth to you? If it's only worth 1%, give just 1%, right? If it is significant in your life, if what God has done in your life causes you to stand in awe and wonder at his incredible love and grace, and you are bowled over by the the, the grace of God, well let your giving reflect that. Okay. Give in proportion to how much you value God's salvation in your life. Okay? Uh, that's what it's about worshiping God because of the work he's done in us. Uh, finally, not only does Abram's offering bless Melchizedek, uh, or bless God, but it blesses Melchizedek. Uh, the reality is that God doesn't actually need any of our money. So no matter how much you give, God doesn't directly benefit. Okay, His benefit, his blessing is from our heart attitude, and perhaps there's something in the greater, the sacrifice, the greater it demonstrates our heartfelt cry of worship. But God actually doesn't spend any of the money. He doesn't need it. God you know, is not up there going, you know, I'm almost broke. I hope somebody comes through with a big gift this month. Okay, that would be what I say, <laughs> not what God says. Right? But the reality is that as we give to God, we bless others because that money is then made available... And uh, throughout Scripture, it's blessed in two ways. It blesses God's priests, as it does here, those who minister and serve Him. The reality is that a lot of us are here living because somebody in another country is worshiping God in their giving, and you become blessed as they do that. And your ministry gets moved forward by that. Uh, Secondly, throughout Scripture, and this is a a huge uh, issue in the Old Testament, Uh, We are to benefit the poor and the needy. Our giving and blessing God in worship ought to filter out in in blessing those in need. In fact, in the Old Testament, they were to give an annual tithe of all of their income. uh, And every third year, they were actually to give that tithe to the poor and needy in their community. So there would be a constant fund in the temple in Jerusalem, taking care of the worship and the ministry there, and in their own local communities, they were to be setting aside money every three years to take care of the needy and the poor, to show God's grace and mercy to those in need. So we bless the world through our giving. Thirdly, uh, to finish up this story, uh, Abram blesses God and blesses the nations through his intercession. Uh, the story ends rather interestingly. So you got this interaction with Melchizedek, who, by the way, didn't lose anything. Okay, Jerusalem is quite a distance from the uh, kings of the Dead Sea. He was not in any way in, in league or in alliance with them. Okay, he's just a guy watching the show from the sidelines who chooses to bless Abram. But also in the welcoming committee is the king of Sodom. Okay, everything that is in Abram's possession belongs to him. right? And this is the guy who when the kings came ran like a chicken and allowed his wife and his family and his city to be drug off captive while he stood by and watched. Right? This is the guy who after the enemy have gone far away does nothing, nothing about it. He just goes back and drinks a beer, right? And gets depressed and goes, I don't know what to do, right? Because he's a chicken. He lives by fear. He is a wicked man who uh, will not fight to save or protect or rescue those in his care. Right? That's the guy, okay? And so he comes, and you know, here comes his wife, here comes his family, here comes the city, people who voted him into office. It's going to be a bad election year for him, right? And uh, he goes to Jerusalem, and at this valley, he meets them as they come back. And these are his words, okay? His first words to Abraham, he says. Give me back my people. Wow, there's gratitude for you, right? Give me back my people. First words. Okay? Melchizedek's first words were, I give you this bread and wine. In contrast, his first words were, Give me my people. Right? There's absolutely no thankfulness or gratitude on this guy's part. This guy should have been kissing Abram's feet with thankfulness that Abram did what he, he did not. But instead he is controlled by jealousy and anger and whatever. He is as ungrateful as it gets. He says, you can keep the cows. Just give me the people. Let me get out of here. And Abram vows that he will not take one uh, shoestring, literally, one sandal lace from this king. He says, I'm not going to have anybody accuse me of getting wealthy off of you. And uh, aside from the tithe that he gives, Abraham returns everything to this wicked king. And he shows really great kindness to this very ungrateful king. He had a right. Actually, he had a right to all the spoils of war, people and possessions. Kind of the code, the pirate code of that day is finders, keep, uh, find, finders keepers, losers, weepers, right? That was kind of the pirate code of the day. Um, he says, No, I give it all back to you. Right. Fast forward. And so so the principle here is that uh, Sodom, the king of Sodom, uh, really curses Abram. He does not acknowledge God. He does not acknowledge God's work through Abram. He does not in any way show thankfulness or gratefulness. He disdains. He Disregards Abraham, and so we know, of uh, course, we know the rest of the story because you've all read ahead, right? And we know that things are not going to go well for him. Sodom is going to fall under God's wrath, and so we jump ahead to chapter 18, uh, starting in verse 16. Uh, God actually visits Abraham, and they are uh, they have a dinner, and after dinner they walk out, and Abraham walks them. Uh, to the edge of town, God and these two angels, and uh, it says, as they left, Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And God says, Should I make my plan? Should I hide my plan from Abraham? For Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. So the Lord told Abraham, I have heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. I am going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. God is about to judge Sodom. But before he does that, he is going to go investigate, he's going to confirm the details. And in this very interesting scene, uh, God and Abram are looking down across the valley to the far distant valley of the Dead Sea. And they see way off in the distance uh, the lights of the city. And God says, should I I reveal my plan to Abram? Uh, The plan of destruction. It's very interesting. And and, uh, he says... Uh, He gives the reason why he should. And the reason is simply this. He says, uh, Abraham's going to become a great nation. He's going to be blessed. And both Abraham and his descendants are going to be instructed in the way of the Lord. Uh, They will know the way of God. And, And so God decides, because of that, that he will let Abraham in on his plans. What, what is that all about? Well, it's simply this. Uh, God is working in Abraham by building a holy people. right? And he said, you're going to be a people who are going to know my heart. You okay, know the way of the Lord means to know God's heart toward the world. God's intentions toward the world. And so God says, therefore it is right because you are being, because you are becoming like me. Because you were in this relationship with me where you were taking on and growing in an understanding of my heart, my thoughts, my will. It is right, therefore, that I bring you into my counsel. That's what God's saying here. That's an amazing thing, amazing principle here. That God says, when people become mine, and I choose them and I bless them and I pour out my mercy in them and they become transformed so that they share in my thoughts and my heart and my will... I then want to bring them into my counsel when I make decisions about things. Okay, you get the, the impact, the implication of that. Okay? As God's children, as those who are being, by the work and the blood of Christ, being changed into His likeness, Right. as your thoughts are transformed by God's Word so that, as Paul says, through the renewing of your mind, you are being made like Him. God invites you into his counsel about his activity in the world. And so God reveals his plan, or he hints at it. He actually doesn't say what he's going to do, but he hints at it. He says, This is what I'm thinking of. I see this wicked city down there, and I'm not sure yet what I'm going to do about it. What do you think, Abraham? What's your take on it, Abraham? I want to hear your heart in this issue. Because you are one who knows the way of God. And it's interesting as as Abraham really begins to intercede for this city. Notice what he says. He says, um, the other man turns out, and, and, and so Abraham says, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you sweep it away and not spare it for their sake? Surely you, God, would not do such a thing destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that, God. Surely not the judge of all the earth uh, who does what is right. See what what Abraham's doing here? He's walking in the way of God. He's taking up counsel with God because he shares God's heart and mind. And he's wrestling with this issue. We don't have time to get into it this morning. But the issue is, if God doesn't judge them then the wicked get away with murder, literally. If he does judge them, and he rains down destruction, and he kills good and righteous people, that's also unjust. So Abraham enters into this internal dilemma that God faces when he judges. Right? And he begins to petition God, and he pleads for this city. Now, you know, he knows this king okay, this is Mr. King ungrateful. This is Mr. King, I want my people back, right? Okay, this is Mr. not very polite. He knows these people. He has had contact with them. Chances are their reputation of evil was well known throughout that region. And yet, Abraham has compassion on them and he pleads for these wicked people. Why? Well, because he has the heart of God, doesn't he? And he wrestles with, these issues and these questions, right? And he wrestles with them before God. And in so doing, God allows Abraham to have influence in this circle of counsel. Okay, now I don't understand this at all. I don't understand how a sovereign God, who's got everything worked out from beginning to end, does this. Uh, God is sovereign and he does know all things. But somehow in the mystery of his sovereignty... He invites his children into his council to have influence with his plans. Right? And so Abraham goes through this whole thing, and you know, 10, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. You know, what will you do, God? Will you will you, do, will you will you send on judgment? Don't do it, God. Spare this wicked city for the benefit of even ten righteous people. And he pleads. God's mercy on this city. Incredible. Um, And just as God began the discussion, God quickly ends it and he goes. Uh, But God calls us to this ministry. How, How can we bless the world? Well, we bless it through our life. We bless it through our giving. But a significant way that you and I can bless the nations is by interceding for lost people. God calls us to this, uh, and because we share His heart and mind, He invites us into His counsel. And uh, there's a twofold thing going on here, and I don't understand it. Okay, and if you can explain this to me, you're really smart and godly. Okay, somehow God has it all worked out, but at the same time, God has left space for us to influence what He's about to do. And right now, God is 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 in counsel about what he's going to do with places like Thailand. What he's going to do with lost people in Thailand. 65 million people, only about 500,000 Christians. six 64,500,000 lost people. And God is waiting for his church, his people, to take counsel with him and to plead his mercy for these people. Right? All across Asia, there are millions, billions of people who are under God's Certain wrath and judgment, right? And God has called His children; He's called His people to the place of intercessors who plead for lost people around the world. It ought to be—it ought to uh, be—the call and place of every one of us to be pleading for lost people, right? Uh, And the reality is, uh, this passage teaches, and others as well, that. It's not just an exercise in futility. In other words, we don't just pray because God's already made up his mind and it doesn't matter. The reality is it does matter. Uh, God deliberately drew Abram into this pleading place, into this place of his counsel because it made a difference. Right? You might say, well, it didn't make much difference for Sodom. He wiped him out. True. But the principle is that it does make a difference in the counsel and wisdom of God. Okay, our prayers make a difference in the world, and God is uh, sitting poised to pour out judgment on sixty, almost sixty-five million people in Thailand who don't know Jesus. Right? You and I can make a difference through prayer. Are we pleading like Abraham did for lost people? Uh, do we have? And the crazy thing is, Abraham had compassion on these people. He had compassion on these wicked people. And because of that, he pled God's mercy over them. Uh, do we have that kind of compassion? Are we praying daily for lost people? Are we pleading uh, in the counsel of God that He would save people in Thailand? You know, if if we're not, if that's not our heart, we need to confess that before God because that's the way of God isn't it we serve a God who loves lost people that's why he sent Jesus to die for them right jesus gave his own god gave his only son jesus on the cross he gave the ultimate sacrifice because he longs to save lost people it is the heart of God to love and to long for lost people uh, do we love and long for the salvation of lost people Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your heart is to show great love and mercy to sinners. Indeed, while we were yet sinners, you demonstrated your love for us by sending Jesus to die for us. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would have your heart towards lost people. And Lord, that we would be diligent to plead before your throne for your grace and mercy upon the lost people of Thailand and Cambodia and Burma and China, Laos, India. Lord, these places, Pakistan, Afghanistan. Lord, these places around the world where there are billions of lost people who desperately need the light and life Of Jesus, Lord, give us that kind of passion that comes from You, that kind of burden that comes from You, to pray for lost people. And Lord, we thank You that You hear our prayers, and that our pleas and petitions on the behalf of the lost do not fall on deaf ears. That You listen. That You hear our prayers. And somehow you work in response to our pleas for the lost. But thank you for your mercy. Thank you for saving us. We just bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.